0: Teaching of God's holy word. Holy Spirit, you know each of us by name and call us into Christ's kingdom. Let his words and teaching change our lives that we may better honor and glorify his holy name. Amen. A New Testament reading from Paul's epistle to the Galatians, chapter 2, beginning with verse 11. The word of the Lord. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the word of the Lord.
1: If you have a Bible, I invite you to uh, turn with me to the book of Acts in the New Testament. Uh, Acts chapter 11, uh, beginning on verse 19. If you have a few Bible, you can find it starting on page 1711, or if you have the Memorial Church app, you can just start clicking on the sermons tab. What's in a name? It's a question at the very center of Romeo and Juliet by William Shakespeare. What's in a name? The question is, comes because when Romeo and Juliet first meet, they don't realize that they're actually members of rival families, those that bear the name Montague and Capulet, those who've been feuding for years. You see over the years, through nursing old wounds and expecting the worst of each other, those bearing each name actually learned uh, to view the other with suspicion and with contempt, so much so that their identity became rooted not so much in who they were, but who they were against. Shakespeare's story, it's only through the relationship of Romeo and Juliet, those who are told that they cannot be together, that the audience is actually forced to ask themselves some questions. Questions like, does it have to be this way? Questions like, what can actually bind together people that are told by everything else you cannot be one? Questions like, what if we've come to associate something with a name that is wrong? What if behind it there's actually something more wonderful than we ever dared imagine? How would we ever know? Well, the questions Shakespeare raises are actually just as relevant to us uh, today. In our polarized culture, increasingly polarized culture, we have names in our own heads that we've learned to view with suspicion and to assume the worst about, whether that name reflects a person's family heritage or their position on social issues or their political affiliation or the part of the country that they're from. What's in a name? It's a question we could ask today about the word Christian, but maybe in a different way. You see, just as the name Montague had eventually become associated with hatred towards the Capulet family, eventually the name Christian started taking on a bunch of other associations as well. You see, like the name Montague or Capulet, the name Christian is often today assumed to be associated more with who they might be against than what they're actually for sadly as our broader culture becomes more polarized, the reality that we see more and more in our cities, the Christian churches, really just followed suit. 11 a.m. continues to be the most ethnically divided hour of the week, while researchers tell us that today people are just as likely to choose a church not based on whether it matches their theological views, but whether it affirms their political views. In the culture that we're living in today, that's already having a growing and growing fear and distrust of organized religion, the church has actually started to look more like the problem than like the solution. And maybe that's because we forgot something. See, just as Romeo and Juliet challenged the assumptions related to their names, the book of Acts that we're going to look at today actually has the power to challenge our assumptions and our notions of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to bear that name. And giving us the historical account of the birth of the Christian church, it not only shows us what it was meant to be, but also shows us what it can be today. So today we're going to look at what happened when the gospel of Jesus first came to a large, diverse, and divided city, the city of Antioch. And what we'll see not only offers hope for a divided city, but actually offers a fresh perspective of what it means to be a Christian. It's here in Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 19. This is God's word. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news of the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch when he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God. He was glad and he encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all of their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, One of them, named Agabus, stood up and, through the Spirit, predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for their brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. This morning, as we look at this passage, I just want us to consider a few things. What was going on in Antioch, and why was it going on there? What does this tell us about what it means to be a Christian today? And and finally, how can this actually become a reality for us? Well, first, what was going on in Antioch? Uh, Simply put, a lot. Uh, We know that back in, in Acts chapter 8, that persecution had been causing all but the apostles in Jerusalem to flee, to scatter for their life. And as these Christian refugees left, they brought the message of Jesus with them. And so as they came to Antioch, the message of Jesus was shared and it was received. And it took some deep roots. You see the fact that we see in uh, verse. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. I'm dehydrated today. The fact that when they came to Antioch, that there was no small response is obvious in this passage. The church was not only existing; it was thriving. It was growing. Twenty-one tells us that the Lord was with them, and then great numbers of people believed and turned to the Lord. A fact that was actually echoed. Three verses later, in fact, three times in this passage, Luke talks about just how great the response was, something unparalleled in the rest of his book. In fact, it was by far the best response to the gospel in years. Verse 22 tells us that so many people were responding to the word that news got back to Jerusalem about it. So much was going on that they had to send someone to check it out. And you could imagine the suspicion, like, Antioch? Really? Are the numbers really true? Are these real conversions or is it fake news? I mean, what are you doing? Like offering to give away like a free chariot to one new worshiper each week. I mean, you can imagine the suspicion, but when Barnabas goes to check it out, he finds out it's true. It's real. And after teaching and encouraging them there, so much more was happening that Barnabas actually had to go to Tarsus to bring back Saul to to pastor with him to keep up with everything that was going on. Something special was going on in Antioch. And at least part of the reason why they sent somebody was because Antioch wasn't like other towns. It wasn't a Jewish town or even a, a half-Jewish town. It was, it was the capital of the imperial province of Syria. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire with a population greater than St. Louis and more densely populated than Chicago by tenfold. From the very beginning, knowing that it was going to be this major uh, trading hub, it was anticipated to be a diverse city with people from all over the world, and it was. like Today, when you can go to, say, San Francisco and check out Chinatown or maybe Miami and go to Little Havana. If you went to Antioch, you could find distinct ethnic communities of Persian or Indian or Chinese or Jewish or Syrian residents, as well as those from Rome, the Greeks, Africans, and others. See, unlike most modern cities, though, there's no one way that you would accidentally wander from one neighborhood to another. See, back when it was built in 300 B.C., it was anticipated to be a global city, and so they built walls, not only around the city, but in the city, to separate 18 distinct ethnic neighborhoods. It was assumed the only way to keep people from hurting each other was to physically wall them off from each other so that their differences and misunderstandings don't turn into violence. And yet, even despite that, violent riots were still common. It was into this context that the gospel was first introduced to them, and it was those who the people scattered spoke to that started turning heads. You see, in verse 19, it says that some went to the Jews. They went to the Jewish neighborhoods. They went to those that were like them, with similar culture and and backgrounds and assumptions and practices. And yet, verse 20 says they also went to the Greeks. In other words, to the Greek-speaking non-Jews, to the Gentiles. Not those who bore the beloved name Jews, but those that bore the hated name Gentile. Those of different cultures, different assumptions, different practices, different backgrounds. And it wasn't the apostles doing this. They were all back in Jerusalem. No, this was simply unnamed, ordinary, non-ordained followers of Jesus. And the result? Long-separated peoples started coming together with only Jesus in common between them. People from different homelands with different accents, different ways of thinking, different mother tongues, living in different neighborhoods, all coming together only because of Jesus. And we know from two chapters later in Acts 13 when it lists five names of leaders in the church, if you look closely at the name, they actually represent people from three different continents and four different ethnic groups. We know something about divisions here in St. Louis. Here in St. Louis, we have uh, an imaginary division, the Delmar Divide, separating historically two different people groups roughly following the Delmar Boulevard stretch in the city. And yet Antioch didn't have two. They had 18 walled off communities with ethnic strife, physically separated by giant walls. And yet when the gospel came to that city, Christians started climbing over those walls because they so wanted to worship with each other. And their newfound unity didn't stop at the Antioch city limits. See, verse 29 tells us that they took up an offering and each, according to their own ability, sent relief to the believers, enduring famine in Jerusalem, treating people they'd never met as families, simply because they were followers of Jesus. So what was happening in Antioch was so unique in the world history, so unheard of that those observing this actually couldn't describe it with a single word in their own vocabulary. They couldn't just, you know, label them because they were all of the same ethnicity or income level or political views. There were already names to label people that had those things in common. The only thing this new community had in common seemed to be the one that they always talked about, Christ so to the onlookers in this city, that became their name. Verse 26, it tells us that it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. And yet this dynamic, ever-growing community of Jesus' followers didn't happen right away. In fact, this took place over a decade after the death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, over a decade after the giving of the Holy Spirit. It makes you wonder, like, what took them so long? Why? Why now? Well, the reality is it probably had less to do with when it took place than where it took place. Why did it happen here, of all places? Why Why Antioch? What was different about it? Well, there's a lot of things about Antioch that were different, but I just want to focus on two really briefly. One was the fact that it was a very diverse population. In other words, people with different family heritages, with different life experiences, different perspectives on the world, different ways of thinking and speaking, even if they're speaking the exact same language. These cities are where you would find not only the very rich, but also the very poor. A place where cultural minorities would flock together. A place where the upwardly mobile go to get ahead, and where the vulnerable go to seek refuge all together. Second, they not only had a diverse population, but a dense population. A place where you don't measure your nearest neighbor in in miles or even in feet, but sometimes just in, in inches. Because space was at a premium. You're closer to each other, closer to those not like you, Close enough that you can't avoid them if you try. See, simply put, whoever we are, the diversity of a city gives the opportunity to interact with people not like us, and the density of a city makes that interaction pretty much unavoidable. And here's why that's all important for us. See, the message of Jesus is from the beginning to the end, a message for all peoples. And yet, if we're honest, all peoples have a tendency to try to treat Jesus kind of like an add-on to our own culture, our own way of doing things a tendency to baptize our own views and our values on controversial subjects like politics or economic or social policy and call that Christian. As a result, the message of Jesus, a message meant for all people, simply gets reduced to the message of of my own people. And if separate peoples are all doing this separately, how would we ever know? While I was on vacation this fall, I actually... uh, I uh, met a few people that were also there as, in Nashville as, as tourists, and I met one with a group of others who grew up in a Christian home uh, in Macedonia, a country just north of Greece. She moved to the U.S. in her teen years, and now uh, approaching 30, she was married. She was living in Michigan. She was deep in her career. And so we started talking about her experience of, of church between the different places and started sharing some of her struggles with the beliefs that she'd encountered in churches here In America. When I asked her to describe all these beliefs that she was encountering, she described them as very American. And she had a lot of words to describe the different beliefs that she was now hearing for the first time ever, even though she'd followed Jesus her whole life. And so it's probably telling that that's the term that she used. See, having different perspective actually helped her see something that those that she met probably didn't how they may have mistaken some of their own culturally-based views and values for those of Jesus Christ himself. And I wondered how often her perspective was actually valued and actually sought out, how often it was added to the mix of her new community. You see, in a mixed community, you don't have the option of baptizing any one culture and calling it Christian because as soon as you try it, those like the friend I met in Nashville see it for what it is and, like, and likely will struggle to remain a part of it. And yet, if you're part of the prevailing culture, you'll likely see the church as redundant, having nothing unique about it that you can't find outside of the church. See, a mixed community actually puts us into contact with those who challenge our assumptions, who force us to ask really hard questions about our own beliefs. It creates an environment where there's actually resistance to putting forth my own preferred way of doing things and actually calling that Jesus' way of doing things. There's a lot of challenges to living in a mixed community and yet somehow it's actually good for us because it actually forces us to reconsider what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus. Some of you know that uh, I grew up in Nebraska, and and when I was there in college, uh, I was part of a a great Christian community between my church and between my campus ministry, a group with a lot of really good strengths. We had our weaknesses, too. And when I moved out of state to to begin an internship with that same organization— Uh, I took all of those strengths and weaknesses with me and I was surrounded suddenly as somebody who believed that the more somebody grows, the more they would look like me and like my community. I suddenly met mature Christians that were not like me at all and it led to a lot of friction between us. You see, when they did something that I, I wouldn't have done or maybe I didn't understand, I assumed it was because of a character flaw on their part, when they didn't adopt the same fear-based rules that I'd been living by, I figured they just didn't care about righteous living. When they didn't work as many hours as I did, as somebody who had yet to learn how to rest, I just thought they were being lazy. And it wasn't just that I I viewed their differences as character flaws, but I eventually began to treat them as if they were flawed. See, back when I surrounded myself with people just like myself, I, I... I had my own issues, but those issues went unnoticed because everyone else had the same issues. We were blind to them, but that wasn't the luxury I had in this new community. You see, it was only after I began to see the damage that I was doing to those around me that I began to reconsider that the beliefs behind my behavior and attitudes might be off. might be different than what it means to follow Jesus. What if my image of this exacting, always condemning, graceless God, the one I was projecting to all these others, what if that was wrong? Would I have ever seen that if I was only surrounded by people just like me? You see, it was living and serving and experiencing conflict with people that were different from me that actually led to unearthing my own unbelief, my own struggles, my own judgmental heart, my own emotional immaturity. You see, if our only interactions are with those like ourselves, those with the same blind spots that we do, nobody's going to see them and it's likely going to stunt our spiritual growth. And yet a mixed community, actually as tough as it can be at times creates the ideal setting for our growth because it strips away the things from us that are not Christian but have been called that. It actually forces us to focus on Jesus as our common source of unity and purpose, not a given cause, not a given issue, not a cultural assumption, not a personality temperament. Jesus above all else. That's the reality that they experienced in Antioch because the gospel wasn't coming to one Jewish or non-Jewish community. It was coming to 18 distinct communities at once. And the only hope for them to stay together in their divided city was for Jesus to be their focus and their highest allegiance. So that's what Barnabas sees, and that's what he encourages in verse 23, where he encourages them to remain true to the Lord with all of their hearts. And when people actually see this in action, it actually leads to a curiosity. Diversity creates It causes others to take a closer look and ask, what's keeping them together? Who is this Jesus they keep on talking about? And maybe what we see in the passage of Scripture here today can pique our curiosity as well, to the point that we ask ourselves questions as well. Questions like, what does this mean for us today? Questions like, what does this tell us about what it means to be a Christian? It tells us a few things. First, it, it means that we've actually found something in Jesus that enables us and actually makes us want to come together with those that are not like us. Uh, Philip Yancey, a Christian author, puts it this way. As I read the accounts of the New Testament church, no characteristic stands out more sharply than diversity. Beginning with Pentecost, the Christian church dismantled the barriers of gender, race, and social class that had marked Jewish congregations. Paul, who as a rabbi had given thanks daily that he was not born a woman, slave or a Gentile, marveled over the radical change, saying, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. modern Indian pastor shared this with him. Most of what happens in Christian churches, including even miracles, can be duplicated in Hindu and Muslim congregations. But in my area, only Christians strive, however ineptly, to mix men and women of different castes, races, and social groups. That's the real miracle. Second, it means that we've actually found something that prompts solidarity with other believers in need. Even those that we haven't met, whether we're talking about famine relief in first century Jerusalem or hurricane relief in modern-day Puerto Rico. Third, it means that the ministry of the church belongs to every believer. See, it wasn't a celebrity pastor who started this church in Antioch, but unnamed lay Christians who are willing to cross cultural barriers who are willing uh, to do the hard work to give to those in need. And the process ended up creating something so unheard of, it forced the people in Antioch to invent a brand new word to describe it. Even this morning, just up front, we heard about the ministry that God is doing through the children of this congregation. The ministry of the church belongs to every believer. Fourth, it means finding and embracing a different kind of organized religion. See, it's very American to be spiritual but not religious. In other words, to approach Christianity like this is an individual endeavor. It's just, you know, me and my Bible. And in the process, we tend, that approach brings with it a suspicion of some sort of communally held doctrines or beliefs. And yet, for many, the suspicion of organized religion has come from what happens when religious people get together, how they do or maybe do not apply their commonly held beliefs. And a lot of the negative press behind the phrase organized religion is actually merited. And yet in Antioch, it was actually what they held in common. Their common faith that actually led to both their unity and their diversity and their unified service together. You see, they were known for how they did community in a way that was different from the tribalism of their city and a way that was different from the individualism of our own day. You see, they found a different kind of organized religion. Not what led to them excluding others, but what led to this radical inclusion. Not what kept them apart, but what actually drew them together. Not what built walls, but what finally overcame those walls in their lives. Not to consolidate control for any one person, but to enable everybody to be able to yield control of their lives for the benefit of others. You see, the problem with organized religion isn't that it's organized. It's what it's been organized around. Finally, it means believing that people can change that you're never too far gone to have a place in Christ's church. In other words, it means not holding people's pasts against them, like we so like to do in our world. You see, the same verse that tells us where the name Christian came from in verse 26 is also where Luke talks about Barnabas bringing back to town some guy named Saul. Remember Saul? In Acts chapter 8, he's the one who gave the approval of the execution of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. He's the one that the Christian refugees were fleeing from. And to put this into perspective, what's happening here in Acts chapter 11, let's just put it in modern terms. Uh, uh, We've actually got a picture, I think, to maybe help that out. I think we've got a picture. You might recognize this guy. Uh, This is Abubakar al-Baghdadi. He's the current leader of the Islamic State, the organization that recently took credit for the death of eight people in New York City. Under his leadership, ISIS has killed, imprisoned, and displaced countless people, including many Christians, causing many to flee from their, their homelands to other cities and other countries when his army rolled into town. Bloodstained streets and sidewalks, bombed-out churches, empty, deserted villages all bear the marks of Baghdadi and his followers. A massive search has actually been underway for him for years, and yet currently nobody can really confirm his location, or even if he's still alive. But what if he were to reappear in the last place that you would ever expect? Imagine with me that that you were somebody fleeing this guy, fleeing the ISIS persecution, when it rolled into town and destroyed your city. Maybe following some time in refugee camp, you're finally able to resettle in a new country, in a new city, and in that new city you hear about a new church. And so you decide to check it out. There's a lot of buzz in the city. And so you walk in and you start witnessing conversations between people speaking all different languages, looking a lot different from each other. And in the corner, you recognize a few people in your own language having a conversation. And so you kind of sneak around the corner and, like, eavesdrop without being seen. And you hear that they're talking about how the church got started, how it was actually founded by a group of refugees from your own homeland. And then you hear this. One of them asks the other, What could possibly have scared them so much that they left their home, their livelihood, and their, all their belongings behind? A question to which the second person, who looks oddly familiar to you, replies reluctantly after taking a deep breath and simply says, Me. Both of them look puzzled, and yet, fortunately, the awkwardness is paused when someone calls all the worshipers to take their seats. The service begins, and then halfway through the service, uh, the pastor comes forward to make an announcement and introduces everybody to their new assistant pastor. And suddenly, that person that looked oddly familiar starts walking forward, and you're introduced to your church's new assistant pastor. And surprise, surprise, it's none other than Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, who proceeds to share with you how Jesus had changed him, how Jesus had called him away from his life of terrorism and made him one of his followers, and then you hear the pastor of the church telling you about that radical conversion. And for the next year, you and the rest of this congregation are loved and taught and served by one who left their life of terror behind. And as radical as that story would sound to you, if that were to happen today, that's exactly what happened when Saul came to the Antioch, church, the very one who caused the persecution in verse 19, that caused people to flee, that ended up founding this church. And as Stahl stood before them, maybe with tears in his eyes, he saw before him how God had repurposed his sin. The very fact that these people were able to not only receive him and trust him and receive his teaching as well shows that God's ability to reconcile people's knows no boundaries. You see, from its first use, thank you, from its first use, the word Christian referred to a multi-everything community of grace, of forgiveness, and reconciliation, nurtured by the apostles' teachings, and serving the needs of others because Jesus had become so central to them all that it overcame every other boundary that every other identity in their life created. It was a word to describe what no other word could describe. Such dramatic growth. Lives that were being changed, left and right started by lay people in a city of ethnic strife, resulting in unprecedented unity and sacrificial service, and in the last place that you'd ever expect, Antioch. How is it possible? How has this become a reality for us? Well, what they found in this new community that made them Christian was, in a word, grace. That thing so uniquely Christian and yet so often missing so strange, so foreign to how organized religion tends to work. Verse 23 says that when Barnabas arrived, he saw the evidence of the grace of God. Grace, simply put, is the unmerited favor of another. In this case, the unmerited favor of God, something that leaves traces of itself behind. Theologian Karl Barth put it this way, grace must find its expression in life, otherwise it's not really grace. And Barnabas, knew that only grace could account for what he witnessed in Antioch. He's the one who witnessed the change in Saul's life. He's the one that knew that grace had come and that grace came through those who bore the message of grace. The message of grace begins with the good news that God is actually the creator of of all peoples, created to know him, to, to love him, and to live for him. But the reality is instead we tend to live for ourselves. We tend to base our lives and our value and our worth and our identity on something other than God, something that the Bible calls sin. Having lost God as our, as our ultimate end and good, we actually make other things into that ultimate good, our, our functional gods. And then we judge people by, by that, by our strengths. We judge people by our strengths, by our personal strengths or by the strengths of our community. And if they're not strong where we're strong, that's who we can't stand we judge people by our own cultural values, that which we set over and against others' cultural values. We judge people by our own tribe, our own views, our own activism, or maybe even our own pacifism. Having forsaken God as our ultimate good, something else takes that place and becomes our functional God, the ultimate thing by which we judge and measure everything else, including ourselves. And yet as we begin to see others' differences they suddenly become not ways that are different, but ways that they have to be wrong, have to be backward, have to be inferior. The problem, though, is not that we recognize that some things actually are good. Some things actually are right. Some things actually are not. The problem is that we make ourselves the standard of that, our own strengths, our own values, our our own community's ways of thinking. We make that the measure of what is good and what is right and what is not, because our focus is ourselves. Rather than experiencing life the way God intended, we actually become the judges of life according to our own personal intentions. And yet if we're honest about it, if I'm honest about it, we don't even live up to our own ideals and our own standards perfectly. And so instead we prefer to shift our focus away from ourselves to how others fail to live up to them. We like to do it. We like to pass on stories, maybe in person or maybe on the Internet, showing just how wrong the other group is while vigorously defending our own camp. And at the root of it all is this effort to justify ourselves by our own relative merits compared to others. The reason we do this is we're actually wired from the very beginning to seek that which will tell us, I know your flaws, and yet in spite of your flaws, you're okay. And as long as we believe that we can actually accomplish that through comparison with others, we're going to continue along the same path that only builds the divisions between us, eager to score points for our side, but maybe not so eager to listen to the other side. And Yet the message of grace tells us that it never works. It's a trap. It's a trap that I've fallen into. And yet seeing that is what actually helps us break the cycle. Seeing that calls our focus away from ourselves, away from others, and to the one who actually made us in comparison to the one who is holy, to the one who is righteous, to the one who is just. Hey, we all all pale in comparison. Usually in the process of, of trying to find a good way to get along, we adopt a, not grace, but we adopt kind of a counterfeit of grace that we usually call tolerance. Tolerance basically says, you're different from me, and yet I'm assuming that's all okay, and so you're okay, and so I accept you. The problem comes when we actually find something in ourselves or others that actually is wrong. And then attitudes and slights and condemnation follow. Grace, on the other hand, takes a very different approach. Grace says, there actually is something deeply wrong with you. And there's actually something deeply wrong with me. And you're accepted anyway. Not because of who you are or what you've done or what you haven't done, but because of who Jesus is. But because of who Jesus is, because of what he has done in our place. Living the life that we could never have lived but should have lived offering his right standing and his perfect record in place of ours because Jesus knows and we know our own record is not going to cut it. You see, when we see that, it actually humbles us. It undermines the self-righteous pride and arrogance that feed the divisions between us. And yet the acceptance of grace also gives us a confidence, a confidence that undermines our need to find our confidence by comparison with others. Grace gives us permission to see where we might be wrong because it's no longer about our rightness that we're basing our identity. Grace gives us the ability to listen to those that we disagree with. Even if we're sure that 90% of what they're saying or what they're doing is totally wrong, we press in anymore. We find ourselves longing to glean from that other 10% that emanates from the image of God in them, something that we would have never discovered on our own. The perfect spotless record of Jesus, credited to you as what gives you that ability. And yet it's not just Jesus' life that brings people together. Something else was necessary. If you remember the ending of Romeo and Juliet, you know it's not just considered a, a love story, but, but a tragedy. Because knowing that the justice for sins committed by one of them called for the two of them to be forever separate, they decided that if death was the only way they could be together, then death it would be can almost imagine as she's pondering this Juliet on her balcony, leaning over at the railing on a starry night, pondering as she looks up into the starry skies, looking longingly into the distance, pining over Romeo where the cool night air feels, on her skin feels somewhat warmer as she thinks of her Romeo, and yet all the colder when she remembers that they're still apart. Grieving over their separation, she longs to be united with him, even if that could only happen through death. A death that, in the end, was the only thing that actually made their divided peoples come together. Montagues and Capulets, the only thing that finally made them see the ugliness of their sin and put an end to their divisions. You see, in the end, it was through love. A love shown profoundly in death that Romeo and Juliet finally tore down the walls between their peoples. And as Shakespeare wrote this story, you got to ask yourself, where did he get such an idea? Well, 2,000 years ago, Jesus laid down his life, his profound demonstration of love, the tear down walls between us. See, rather than the solution being denying one's own name and taking their life, Jesus offers his own name for you. He lays down his own life for you so that many peoples can become. One. See, only a love worth dying for could actually unite divided peoples together from the heart. And seeing that reality, Jesus looked upon you and your sin and your shame and your guilt, looked upon everything that was not so awesome about you and me. And rather than saying, it's going to be you that has to die, he says, it's going to be me. See, when our sin brought Jesus to the cross, he didn't turn back. As Jesus absorbed the wrath of God for our sin on the cross, he demonstrated his love with his death for his beloved, for you, so that his people who put their trust in him could experience a new type of community, offering this kind of reconciling, boundary-breaking, sacrificial love that would be the foundation of, of his church, for you, for me, for the people who would come to be known as Christians. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for showing us in Jesus this type of radical, boundary-breaking love, something that doesn't cause us to deny our own identities, but something that supersedes them, something that brings us together together Father, something that humbles us, something that gives us confidence, something that as you allow us to experience reconciliation with you through Christ, it is the foundation for us to be able to do that with others. Jesus, be our center. Be the one that binds us together in this place, even as we come to your table. Amen.